anyway, if I'm not very much mistaken, mm. it's today. Yes. And today is the day for Frithcast. Now, that is to say, this is the day that the readers, not readers, what are they? Listeners. Listeners, of course they are, sorry. <laughs> <clears throat> this is the day that the listeners will be listening to Frithcast, but the interesting thing is, because of temporal anomalies, if you like, Yeah. the interesting thing is, although it's today when the listeners are listening to Frithcast, it's also it's today for us. Also today for us to record Frithcast, which is kind of cool. But they're not the same today. But they are, depending on your point of view. Okay. If I say to, if you say to me now, it's today. Right. What day is it? Yeah. I'll say it's today. Today is my day. My day. <laughs> <laughs> so if you say to me, just just do it, just to make, prove the point. Today is today. No, just what, say what to me. Saying? Just say to me, what day is it? What day is it? It's today. Right now. Ooh. Now, just hold that thought because okay. Okay. if, as as one of the listeners listening to this, if the listeners turned around, we've got somebody else with them, perhaps, or you know, maybe maybe they could text someone or something like that. They could say to the person that's with them or that they're texting, they could say, "What's today?" and the person will reply. Uh, what what day is it? And the person will reply, it's today. You see? Yeah. So it works in both directions. It's really clever. Okay. So it's like a bye day then? Well, <laughs> today is bye day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was bad. <laughs> that is bad. <laughs> person to be complaining about a bye day. <laughs> Moving swiftly on. I've had one sip of this so far. I know. <laughs> Are you sure that it's not the mug with the fluff in it? It did have fluff in it. Okay. But I've defluffed it. Okay. No, it didn't have fluff in it. That sounds horrible. No, it was just a bit of something that had got caught on, on it on the way up the stairs. But I brushed it aside and carried on because I'm damned if a little bit of fluff is going to get in the way of me and my room. Oh dear. Just, you know, I have. I'm, there are certain subjects upon which I am assertive. Rum is one of them. Rum is one of them. Anyway, <laughs> Gal Gadot leaning on the Cadillac. Steady. Sorry. Steady. Uh. 
gonna have to try and link to that meme now, aren't we? Yes. Um. So, uh, we're now five, <laughs> five and a half minutes in. Technically, yes, but um, I'm not counting. I well, no. The little device here is so. Uh, I guess mm. we ought to. Uh, well, I'd leave it to you, really, because I mean it's your show. So. It's not my show. Well, it's kind of. Yeah, you know, I'm helping. Yeah. And I'm happy to help, but I'm not gonna do like the introductions and things because that's. All right, fine. I'll do those. That's your thing. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. Hello, lovely listeners. Hello. Welcome to Frithcast episode 86. Welcome around the virtual campfire, wherever you are, the virtual campfire is, with all its requisite modern heathenness, queer madness, and rum, apparently. It's, it's kind of like a sort of TARDIS. Yeah. Um, Open air TARDIS. It's kind of, or is it like, maybe it's like Arcadia. I'm not sure. But wherever you are, it also is. In a good way. In a good way. Not in a kind of, Not like you know, Arcadia, no. Every breath you take kind of way. <laughs> no. No. No, I'm Bad. watching you. No, no, yeah. it's not like that. No. no, no, no. No, it's just a night. It's just a place where you can go, you know, anytime you want but to. Everybody knows you. Know. Everybody. <laughs> yeah, so, virtual campfire, it's, it's there when you want it. It's yeah. like a, it's like a kind of a, like Marcus Aurelius <clears throat> spoke of in Meditations, when he said, "Thou shalt only have one hole in one sock." Basically. Okay. Yeah. Just checking. And he was an emperor. He knew his stuff. He did. He knew his socks. He basically said that for for a Stoic, it was all right because there was always somewhere you could go. Doesn't matter what trials and tribulations the world threw at you. There was always a nice, relaxing place you could go for a holiday in your head. Yeah. What we're probably trying to say, lovely listeners, is the virtual campfire is here anytime you want it. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, it's all good. Yeah. Come and dig out an old episode, listen to some random stuff that you forgot that you thought you knew that didn't come out right, but never mind that. Don't listen to random stuff from me because you probably don't know it afterwards it's probably either. really really random it's <laughs> from me to be fair I go all over the place so we are on episode 86 apparently we are on episode 86 so my little birds tell me and we probably better actually say who we are that's a good idea because we haven't done that yet do that thing hello I'm Suzanne Martin I am a heathen with a head full of stuff yep some of it's queer some of it's sci-fi some of it's geek some of it's nerd Nerd! Nerd! <laughs> you know, it's a random mix of stuff. Archaeology, history, Simpsons, Babylon 5. All that. Yeah. You know. DS9 we've touched on already, I believe. DS9. Why? I, I, I think I've mentioned it before, but I still get this thing when you say, Hello, my name's Suzanne Martin. <laughs> yeah. I'm, my head goes, the editor-in-chief of Cracked. I'm not the editor in chief. You of never have been the editor in chief. Podcast. It's not my it podcast. It was. I don't know whether they even do their podcast anymore. I mean, I, we're talking like <clears throat> you know leagues, leagues, leagues above. Yeah. Where we are, but we are somewhere in the sewer below them. Indeed. <laughs> the very queer, slightly nerdy, geeky rainbow sewer. Dan. Dan O'Brien. Okay. I think his name was. That's definitely not me. No, but this is no. the thing. He always used to introduce himself when he was hosting. He always used to introduce himself. Hello, I'm Daniel O'Brien, the editor-in-chief of Cracked, which he was, but you're not, and you're not called Dan O'Brien either. I'm not. 
Carry on. Not even Mirror Universe. It's your turn to introduce yourself. Oh, it is, isn't it? Yeah. Hello. I'm I'm Kate. I'm um. I'm here. <laughs> that was I'm... deep, actually, for you. That was <laughs> that was quite profound. Do you want to just give it a minute? Luke? It was existential. Yeah. It was proper Nietzsche. That was. You're right. Um, in it there i think i'm uh yeah no i'm just i'm just a uh, hanger on i i'm a i'm a, a, a sort of vaguely coffee powered druid that just happens to live here and i sort of sit around basically making this more difficult for you than it needs to be it's more fun with you i think i can only hope so it's totally much more fun than me just droning on on my own going right here we go we're <laughs> going to talk about this for half an hour there will be a test at the end i'm not going to do that Fair enough. Much more fun around the virtual campfire with a mug of rum with coffee drops in it. You could YouTube. I don't know whether I'm going to go for a YouTube thing. Could do. Yeah. Just say I've got the face for radio. <laughs> okay. Episode 86. Yes. Um, so, what are we going to talk about for episode 86 apart from DS9 Drop the Dead <laughs> Marcus Aurelius. Time travel that we've managed to talk about before we've even started. Good God. The rum is not gone yet and I fear for the moment that it is because it means you've drunk it. It's a vile drink. <laughs> I can tell. You've got a big smile on your face when you're drinking yours. It turns even the most respectable men into complete scoundrels. <laughs> oh, I hope so. <laughs> oh, what it'll do to me, I've no idea. Well... Anyway, moving on from the yes. gen gender shenanigans, what let's are we going to do, talk about? Let's not move on from the gender shenanigans. <laughs> just dose this whole thing in gender shenanigans. We're going to go into gender shenanigans later on. It's oh, a good, good, bridgy thing <gasps> cool. that you've just done. I did a segue. You did a segue and not one of those really kind of boring two wheels and a platform upright sort of things, because <laughs> that's really weird. Did I do a segue or did I do a link? Eh, doesn't matter. Carry on. Yeah. Well, we'll be touching <clears throat> on gender stuff a little bit later on. Okay. But what I want to talk in this episode about, and that didn't come out in the right order, and I'm going to leave it <laughs> in anyway. Shush, woman, I'm trying to keep my thre train of thought is derailed, station permanently, last train home in the tunnel, Sheffield. What are you doing to my brain? You are the one that's drunk. I rum. don't know. Okay. I didn't ever mention trains. No. Right, so what I want to talk about is bling. And I want to talk about if I were a rich man. Money, money, money. Diamonds are a girl's best friend. Only Viking age ones. So what I want to talk about specifically is. Moulin Rouge, I like that film. Beads. 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 These bleeds. Bleeds? Yes. Beads bleed. Yes. These bleeds. No, beads. 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 I want to talk about beads because they're a very small item. Generally? Generally, quite small, decorative. Mm -hmm. They don't have a practical function. They have an aesthetic function. Yes, true. And in the Viking Age, you find them all over the shop. I, all over the place. I have certainly <clears throat> seen at many a reenacting kind of event, mm. people brimming with beads. Yeah. So often you will see a, a lady in dress costume. Yeah. And she will have a pair of tortoise brooches on or big oval brooches. Yep. Holding up her apron strings, mm -hmm. her apron dress at the front. Yep. And she will often have a string of beads between the between two brooches. Yep. Right at the front. One or several. One or several. Yeah. One or several. You tend to find archaeologically it's usually one string. Okay. But reenactors 
or people who are heathen, you could have two strings, three strings, four strings, a dozen strings. It's your thing. That is. Yeah. It's your own individual sense of style. So I wanted to talk about Viking Age beads. Now, this is a bit like all of our episodes. It's a toe dip. Okay. It's a bit of an introduction because this is huge. Big subject. It's big subject for a little thing. Mm. It's a big subject. You think of how big a bead is. It's like, you know, a <laughs> centimetre. This subject is mahoosive. And yeah, but think how big an infinity stone is. and Yeah. yeah. Again, with the snap and the... Big trouble. Half the beads in the universe disappear and oh, you still be... can never find the ones you actually want. That would be bad. I know. So they are what's called a low-value, high-frequency item. Okay. So low-value as in you find a lot of them. They're relatively cheap to make. High-frequency, you find them everywhere. L-V-H-F. Low value, high frequency. Not to be confused with CVDR. No. Which is different. So, if you think about Viking Age beads, the first context you might think about finding them in is funerary contexts. Okay. Graves. Mm -hmm. And you find beads in graves. You occasionally find odd single finds as well that might have been part of a grave or might have just dropped as one single bead somewhere. Okay. They're a bit odd. There's quite a lot of those, and they're all a bit kind of scattered, so... That was a sword in a field. Yeah. Sorry. It's all right. Because of all the ways that sword could have ended up in that field, you had to pick the one. The heavens, the... heavens parting and the heavenly chorus and the... So, yeah, light. this is a bead in a field. Yep. It's difficult to attach meaning to it, especially if it's a ploughed field, you're narnered, mm. because your context is screwed and you cannot tell where it's come from. Are you going to tell the listeners about Harris matrices? I'm not. Okay, fair enough. I want some listeners left at the end (laughs) of this programme. So, the other place you find... I was just going to say, when you you refer to context, you are speaking of the archaeological understanding that that if if land is not disturbed by ploughing or or, or construction work or what have you, generally speaking, there will be layers of... um, Older stuff uh, deeper down, younger stuff towards where your feet are, older stuff right underneath your feet. And absent any disturbance from, as I say, from from farming, from construction, from seismic activity, whatever, you would end up with a fairly accurate okay well this is this old and this is this old and there's yeah. not an awful lot of sort of it's really weird it kind of builds in layers mm. like one of those really nice seven layer rainbow cakes builds like that and so the deeper you go into the cake the happier you get <laughs> the more the older stuff you're likely to find so yeah when you get ploughed fields the plough the big mechanical plough goes into the earth deep yeah. and churns it all up to the surface like an Archimedes screw. Yeah. And so you're narnered. If you then get artefacts on the surface, you have no idea which layer they've come from because it's basically been Swiss cheesed. So it's then like it's... the propeller, what's it behind a submarine, it's narnered. Yeah, yeah. So then it's a... It's all it's, of that churned up. It's a case of then, then it will be a case of trying to match up the style of the artefact with stuff you've already found and that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, but even that, well, you're, you're, you're into kind of Blair territory. You can't infer as much from an artefact that you've found what they call field walking on a ploughed field or on mm. the surface of a ploughed field than you can from an artefact that is generally found in context in, context. in relation to other artefacts. That's okay. 
part of it is not only what artifact you've got, but what relation the other artifacts are to it, mm. where they are distance-wise from it. Yeah. So if you've got a burial, where are the bits of that burial in relation to each other? So we're going to come on to some of the burials later on. But Righto. One of the contexts you find Viking beads is burials. Okay. Funerary contexts. Now, they, there is a very old theory in bead theory, which I don't know whether that's a thing. Bead theory, I like But it. there is a very old hypothesis put out that any grave that has more than five beads is more likely to be identified as female. And I'm being very careful with the words I say. <laughs> and those that have less than five <clears throat> beads are more likely to be identified as male. I mean, we've got to be a little bit careful, even putting aside our own understanding of what all this stuff is about in yeah. the modern day. We have to be a little bit careful because of BJ581. Yeah, and, and probably the, the thousands of others that are out oh, there yeah. that have never been properly identified or haven't been identified yet. But that's my sort of well-known understanding of, well-known example <coughs> of the fact that you can make a lot of assumptions about what a woman would have in her grave, what a man would have in his grave. And, and then, then you can... favourite <coughs> comes along and whoopee cushions the whole darn yeah. thing. And you suddenly find yourself not quite on as solid ground as you thought you were. Yeah. yeah. So there is a long-held understanding that female graves have more than five beads. Yep. Male graves have generally, if they've got any beads at all, it's less than five. And this is just, this is individual beads? This individual is... beads, not okay. necklaces or strings of beads. No. Just individual little beads. Okay. The other place that you find, there's, there's two other main contexts that you find Viking beads. And the first is trade centres. Okay. Places with big markets. Mm -hmm. Places that are hubs, they're often on coasts, on rivers, big towns that are Viking based. You will find huge amounts of beads in the places where they're traded. This would make sense. And in those places where they're traded, you often find beads that have been imported. We're going to talk about a couple of those later on from okay. like across the Viking world that aren't made locally. So, you know, they've come from somewhere else, mm, but they're mm. being imported into that context, that okay. place and then sold out to the local population there or possibly they've been imported into that main port town and then they're taken by traders into smaller towns mm -hmm. on a circuit or smaller towns across a country the other place that you find beads is where they're manufactured okay this is where it gets really fun right where a bead is manufactured might not be the place where it's sold, might not be the trade centre it ends up in, might not be anywhere close to the grave. Which is going to complicate things. Just a little bit. I'm going to, I'm yeah. going to, forgive me if I'm leaping ahead or leaping mm -hmm. off in the wrong yeah, direction, yeah, but is it the case that you will find a particular style of bead from a particular place? Sometimes. Or... Do you find, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm making this up because a lot of things, a lot of archaeological artifacts, pottery and so forth, tends to have a, a geographically specific style. Yeah, some of it does. Yeah. To, to yeah, some yeah. degree. And I'm, I'm sort of I'm sort of running away with the idea that beads would as well. But I mean, I suppose you could ask the same question of the pottery and so forth. I mean, I'm thinking about the extent to which people would make a an, art, an artifact in the style of the 
place where they live and where they're making it against the idea that they might make something in a style which they hope to sell in another place. Yeah, so you could have Town A's potters decide to make pottery in the style of Town B because they're going to go sell it in Town C for less than B's pottery. Yeah. Or you might have a trader who comes from Town A, goes and settles in Town B, and makes Town A pottery because that's what he knows how to make. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it gets really confusing. Beads, because they're quite quick to make, yep. some of them have de- developmental patterns, some of them have designs that that come in and out of fashion. Yeah. Others are, what is the word, is it ubiquitous? <coughs> ubiquitous is, is like all over the place. Yeah. yeah, so some... Found everywhere. Some designs of Viking beads you will find everywhere. They're all over, and some are very specific. So the Hiberno-Norse beads have a specific... Hiberno would be Ireland? Yeah, well, Ireland, Scotland, Norse. The Norse population in those areas is making a very specific style of bead that you don't find anywhere else. Okay. And it's like blue, and I don't know whether you've seen the sort of the Turkish evil eye, blue evil eyes. So you get a blue background and then you get a white eye with a a black centre to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They use that kind of pattern on their beads and they're making tubular beads with little um, twist-wrapped edges in yellow and blue. Okay. But they're doing a lot of... It's very distinctive beadwork and some of the other beads that you find, you can find everywhere and anywhere. Right. So if you look at just the sites where they're manufactured... In Britain, York, Lincoln and Gloucester. Yeah. If you go a bit further abroad, you've got Kalpine, you've got Reber, Berker, Trousseau in Poland and Hedeby. They're all big bead manufacturing sites, which may or may not be where, if they're made out of glass, mm-hmm. it may or may not be where the glass is being made. Okay. So they might take the glass in blocks and then go sell it to the bead maker in the next town across. Or they might have the guy who's making glass in the workshop next to the guy who's making glass beads. Oh, wow, okay. So, yeah, it gets really complicated. Definitely. And glass is great. When you're dealing with glass, you're dealing with a material that has a very specific signature of how the person's made it. So you can generally track what age the glass is from by what chemicals have gone into it. Okay. And how, what process they've made glass with, what kind of levels of sand and ash and what kind of sand it is will produce a very specific chemical composition. I did not know this. The difficulty with glass is that it's recyclable. Yeah. So you can take Roman glass and melt it down and make a modern shape out of it. Yeah. And it will still be Roman chemically, chemical composition of Roman glass, but it, the shape and style of the vessel will be a completely different era. Right. So that happens sometimes. You find glass chemically composite to Roman glass that gets recycled in the Middle Ages. Well, that's... It's a pain in the backside because they've taken old glass, which means we can't trace where they've got the glass from. Yeah. And they're making medieval shapes out of it <clears throat> at particular glass centres. But beads. So... <laughs> You've got these huge sites of bead manufacture. And you've got, on top of that, you've got a layer of, is it a permanent market? Is it a seasonal market? 
when the beads are being traded or they're being bought and sold or they're being bartered for, uh -huh. is it that the market is there permanently all year round? Is it that it's an army's trade market? Is it that it's a summer market that just sets up once a year and then goes away again? A goblin market? Goblin market. You've also then got what they call cereal versus artisanal production. Oh, now you've lost me. Yeah, this is where it gets really fun. So cereal production is like industrial production. Okay. So it's uh, cookie cutter beads. It's somebody being employed as a bead maker full time, seven, eight hours a day, just making beads. Right. Artisanal production is where they might know how to make beads, but actually they make glass vessels. Okay. And they make beads as a sideline every now and again when somebody asks for them. Okay. But it might not be their main trade. They might be a blacksmith and have picked up a couple of glass tricks. So every time, we, every now and again, when they can get glass, they can make some beads with it and sell them for extra. Mm, but mm. they don't do it full time. Okay. So when you're thinking about sites of bead manufacture, it's is it a cereal manufacturer or is it an artisanal manufacturer? Is it what they call a cottage industry, mm. where somebody's doing half an industry, a specialist industry, and half being a farmer. Mm. Okay. So there's all of these different layers in how this one little tiny bead comes in and where wow. it gets traded to and from, what it gets traded for, whether it gets... Archaeology used to be in the 60s in Britain. Archaeology used to think that the very simple understanding of it was that ceramics equaled culture. So wherever you found particular ceramics in a particular style, that was where that culture was, because that was the boundaries of it. The Beaker people! The Beaker people. So you have the Beaker people, and they used beakers of a specific style. Mm. So the original understanding of archaeology That's in the 60s... That's because they're called the they Beaker are people. Called the Beaker people. The original understanding in the 60s was wherever you found that particular style of beaker yeah. in that particular clay with so-and-so associated artifacts or maybe just two or three of them on their own that was where the beaker people's geographical boundary was okay. or that was where their settlement was so I found this I found this beaker of this style in this place where we didn't know they, they, the, they the must have were, been a so now they must have been here Yeah, big hole in this theory People move things around? People move things around. People trade stuff. People pick stuff up in one place and put it into another. I know, car keys. But no. Can I have my archaeology qualification now, please? Because <laughs> I solved that one like it that. It did, yeah. So they, it didn't, what it didn't take into account was trade. And with Viking beads, there is a huge amount of trade. Yeah. So let's go back a little bit to funerary. Okay. Our first category of where you find beads, mm -hmm. Viking beads. Funerary archaeology for Vikings is complicated because they kind of do it in lots of different ways. There's lots of variation. Yeah. Snorri Sturlson says in the Heimskringler that it's cremation. Okay. That's the way to do it. That is your only official way. But what we, when we come to the archaeology, we find, yes, they cremate, but they also bury. Right. Which is great because cremation... Don't leave a whole lot left. Not if it's done right. Not if it's done right. You don't get a lot. You get an urn mm -hmm. with stuff in, if you're really lucky. Yeah. If you get a burial, 
better. Then you get lots of stuff. Then you get lots of stuff. 80 fractured horses. 80 fractured horses. Yeah, big horse jigsaw. Have fun with that horse osteologist. Nice. We'll just throw you chocolate every now and again. And get <laughs> some sleep and you'll be fine. You can have a lifetime out of 80 <clears throat> fractured horses. They thought that the beads that people were buried with, they understood it to be representative of social identity. Okay. So the beads and the clothing that you were buried with was representative of maybe your status or your social standing or... Like, to go back to BJ581, sorry, yeah. but that body was buried with <clears throat> the strategy game yeah. and the weapons and so oh, forth. Yeah. And these are all the things all that... the armour and the helmet, the axe and the bow. And that made... Big shiny things. That made the people, that made the, 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 the archaeologists think, well, they, this person was clearly a warrior. Yes. A strategist. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, women tend to be buried with a pair of oval brooches. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, there is a class of grave. I'm, I can't do this right. I'm going to call it women's graves because that's what all my literature says. Do even it. though it's my fine. little queer self is railing against it. <laughs> but they thought that having a pair of oval brooches on and either having a string of beads between the brooches or a necklace, that tends to be where you find the biggest collections of beads. And they thought that having those pair of oval brooches along with beads and other items like the uh, keys mm -hmm. denoted that you were a married woman okay or that person was a married woman they had status they had a particular standing yeah and they actually find female children's graves girls graves between the ages of about 5 and 15 mm -hmm. they find them not buried with beads but they find them buried with white cowrie shells okay Again, they think it's to do with the gender and status. Right. So probably because you're not, you haven't reached womanhood yet or whatever. Yeah, you get white cowrie shells, but mm. you don't get beads and brooches and keys. Okay. Yeah. Huh. If you want to look at beads in graves, the number one grave at Westerness in Orkney. I've heard of it. In it. The Knip Burial A in Scotland has it, and there's a bead cache at Hillswick, also in Scotland. And they think the bead cache was probably the remains of a female burial. Okay. But they haven't got the rest of the burial, they've just got the beads. Mm. When I'm talking about beads, I'm talking not just about glass beads. They also have beads made out of amber, yeah. carnelian, jet, bone, faience, silver and gold foiled beads, mm -hmm. rock crystal beads predominantly in the eastern viking areas they have solid rock crystal balls with a silver setting around them wow utterly gorgeous incredibly oh heavy. i've seen the replicas yeah. of those at the um yeah yeah you'll uh, see them at the viking the, the, fair yeah utterly stunning there's <laughs> even a a bead made out of a seal tooth okay from bursay in orkney only one mm -hmm. and when you look at the glass beads well they're, they're predominantly the largest amount of beads that you will find are glass ones and they're what called undecorated beads so they're just the plain shape of the bead they've okay. not got any twizzly bits on them they haven't got any color strands or swirls mm. those tend to be more rare than just plain beads okay they tend to be for what it's worth i actually like the plain ones yeah different different colors of glass and just little simple little little beady shapes yeah 
That's that's what yeah. you get. I love those. And predominantly they're blue. Okay. Randomly, but then the next biggest concentration of colour is yellow, and then after that it's green. But you can get them in black, in red, in white, opaque, clear, all of the everything. Okay. But it tends to be they go for blue. This is presumably because they had. I'm trying to think what what they know, what cobalt. What they would use cobalt? Yeah. Um, mm. I want to say copper, but that goes green, doesn't it? Mm, don't know, but they're making lots and lots and lots of blue beads. Mm. But if you go to specific manufacturing sites, it's other colours that dominate. So at the pavements at York, there was a manufacturing site for beads, and it's green beads there that dominate. Okay. Um, at Coppergate at York, it's amber bead manufacture. All right. So they're shipping the amber in from the Baltic, because there's no amber supply in York. Oh, well, no, I suppose not. They're shipping the amber in from across the seas. Across Europe, basically. Across Europe to bring it to York to get them to make amber beads from it, which then gets sold out. Well, how do you get good at making amber beads in a place where there's no amber in the first place unless you're a trader from the baltic who settles in europe are you suggesting not only do beakers move around but people do as well people move around <laughs> they're like wee little triffids on clacky legs they go everywhere it's great if you go to the site of bead manufacturer at the shambles at york it's black beads <clears throat> black beads okay yeah so even though overall, predominantly it's blue, like overwhelmingly 75-80% of the beads you dig out are blue. Okay. At particular manufacturing sites, they're obviously specialising in particular colours mm. on top. If you go to the site at Saffron Walden, the, the funerary site at Saffron Walden, you find two moulded pattern beads. Okay. So they're making them out of moulds, they're not free shaping them and... and creating mm. them by hand. They're putting the glass in moulds and making it. Okay. That's a whole different kind of thing. Yeah. If you go back to Coppergate in York, I'm going to be bouncing around all over the place because I'm very excited about all this Don't do it, stuff do you it. probably realised. <laughs> uh, Coppergate in York, amber bead manufacturing site, but there's no rock crystal beads or carnelian at that site. There's no manufacture for those beads. Even though you find them, there's no manufacturing site for them. So we know they were brought in from somewhere else. They're brought in from somewhere mm. else. There's amber beads at the Peel Castle burial. Okay. And if you think this is all women, I'm going to go back to the thing I said right at the beginning about the fact that if you've got the general accepted rule at the moment is if you've got over five beads, it's probably a woman's grave. Yeah. If you've got under five beads, it's probably a man's grave. What if you've got five beads? Mm. I'm going to tell you about two that break that pattern completely. Okay. Townfoot Farm grave number three has a man's grave, but it has more than five beads in it. Okay. And they're all around the neck. So they're figuring that it was a bloke that was wearing a necklace of beads. And... So this would be presumably unusual, or... Yeah. I don't know. I mean, is, is it just that we've never we've never found it before? I mean, it's yeah. like... Well, can't... there's another one at Ship Street in Dublin that, again, 
it mirrors the one at Townfoot Farm where he's basically got a necklace of beads on, but the the necklace in male in graves with male associated grave goods is much rarer than it is with female associated grave goods. Mm. Female associated grave goods you tend to get beads again round the neck or round the the top half of the rib cage. Yeah. So you get them in that string between the two oval brooches or you get them round the neck in what was a necklace but is now no longer. Mm. But there's two there that are that are male grave good associated, but they both are wearing bead necklaces. Mm. So it's obviously not an absolute you know, you will not wear a woman's necklace because these two are clearly wearing them. Yeah. I talked a little bit about importing and people moving and yep. trade moving. So just from the beads alone that we have found on archaeological sites, the carnelian beads at Bursay in Orkney are produced in the east and imported. Okay. Because they don't have them in Bursay. There's no manufacture for carnelian there. There's no way... Is there not? No, I'm not amazed. Not for that. <laughs> <laughs> for that. Um, Orkney has... <clears throat> pretty much everything else. Um, Cheap, beer, yeah. cheese, jewellery. They do beer. have a really good line of jewellery, actually. Mm. Orkney's quite... Silver. Quite famous for its... Uh, it, t- it tends not to be... It tend, well, I mean, We're talking the modern day, obviously. It tends not to be gem work. It tends to be silver... Um, crafted silver but it's uh, there's some there's some beautiful stuff that they produce in Orkney. So you've got imported beads in Scotland from Ireland. Okay. You've got imported beads at Bursay in Orkney from way across in the east. Mm. You've got ones beads that you find in the Isle of Man that originate in Scandinavia. Crikey. And you've got if, just in case you think, well, it's all internally to the, the Viking uh, diaspora, the Viking kind of... Yeah, the Viking reach. The Viking reach. You've got trail and eye beads that are Viking, that are found in Scotland, but they're Pictish. Oh. So they're trading. Okay. So, yeah, that whole kind of pot sequel people thing, a bit narnered. It's kind of so nonsense, isn't it? Indeed. <laughs> Not not good anymore, but it, it's an odd thing. You find Anglo-Saxon beads in Britain, but you also find Viking Age beads. And where you find Viking Age beads, they're found predominantly in England, in Kent, in East Anglia, in the Midlands. Mm-hmm. Pretty much everywhere where the Dane law is. Okay. The big, the Danish, Viking Danish influence through the centre of Britain. A great, kind of a great diagonal line. Great diagonal line that runs from northwest to southeast. Yeah, big uh, kind of split through England. So everything in sort of the northeast of England, uh, northeast of modern England, was Danish. Yeah, Northumbria all the way down to the <coughs> Midlands. Yeah, and everything to the southwest of the line was. Yeah. What would you say? Anglo-Saxon. Would you say you'd say Saxon? Yeah. Well, ish. That's but yeah, because the Saxons were Saxons were dominant until. Sort of after the after the con- uh, conquest, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, you get towns where they're living side by side, mm. like York, Efferwick, Jorvik. You get that kind of mingling of the two cultures. So you. They're both wrong. It's Eberarkham. I know. 
You don't <laughs> find many beads in the west and southwest of England. Okay. You find majority of them in the east and north. Mm. Because the, that's where you get the huge influx. I should point out we are when we're when we're divvying up uh, the country like that, we are referring to England. Yes. Obviously the Welsh were yes. still in Wales, you know, and uh, Yeah, there is actually Viking Wales. Yeah? Not uh, not huge amounts as far as I know. I might have to go and look that up actually and see what's going on in I was Viking just Wales. making sure while I'm holding forth about oh yes, and the rest of it was Anglo Saxons. Wasn't all <laughs> I was referring to England. <laughs> no. No, carry on, you'll be fine. <laughs> So, this whole thing about, you know, beads are a, basically a woman's thing. Yeah. And not a man's thing, apart from a couple of examples where you've got blokes, very metro Vikings, wearing necklaces <laughs> made out of beads, which is all good and groovy. You also get what they call sword beads. Sword beads? Sword beads. Well, they sound warrior-ish. Yeah, so you get examples of sword beads. And sword beads, you might see them referred to as life amulets, because heavens help me if you should associate the word bead with the word sword. Um, <laughs> life amulets. Life amulets. So in Cormac's saga, don't laugh, Cormac's saga. Not that Cormac. Not that Cormac. You're going to have Cormac. to explain to the listeners who that Cormac is I, now. We'll put a link in the description, it'll be fine. Not that Cormac's saga. Okay. He says... Bercy had a sharp sword called Fitting with a life stone attached to it. So, I'm sorry, what was the name of the saga again? Cormac's saga. Not that Cormac's Not that saga. Cormac. And it, the sword was called what? Vitting. 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 With a V. With a V. Vitting. Vitting. Okay, right. So, and he called it a what? A life... He calls it a life stone, but you might also see them called sword beads. Sword beads, life stone. I'm kind of liking it, actually. I've got a bit of a Hawk the Slayer vibe going on at the moment. Oh, bless you. Are you feeling all right? Yeah. Woo-wee. That was a classy film. Do you remember? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. There's something in my... Uh, it was... I didn't say it was high class. No, it's... Hawk yeah. the Slayer was great. It had he jumps over the same log five times. I know, and you should see the, the elf shooting all yeah, them arrows. No, no, and, bad, no. And, and, but the music was fantastic. It was so 80s. It was so 80s. Anyway, the point is, I'm fairly sure it is Hawk the Slayer. If it isn't, I'm going to feel like a right fool now. Hawk the Slayer had like a big, uh, the on the, in the sword, on the sword, Yeah. there was like a big green gem pommely thing thing pommely yeah. thing in the pommel ah well you see the little these generally are found archaeological context again so graves with swords in them yeah you'll, you mean men i'm gonna let that slide <laughs> you'll find occasionally they have what's called a limestone or a bead and this doesn't tend to be like the women's beads which are like you know a centimeter to maybe an inch diameter they're kind of small okay these sword beads are sort of i don't know three inches across big so that's about what nine centimeters something like that yeah well eight to nine centimeters they're kind of like oversized and 
there's a couple of examples. There's Peter's fingers, graves 20 and 21 both have sword beads. Okay. And they're not beads where they're attached to the pommel of the sword. They appear to be somewhere in the scabbard or attached to the fittings. All right. Not the sword itself. So what was the significance of these? What were they? Were they? Were they just decorative, or were they? Uh, no, they. The theory is that they're a protective amulet. Okay. A lifestone. Hence the yeah. Hence the name lifestone, where either you can't be hurt if you're carrying one, or your injuries will heal quickly if you're carrying one, or it's some kind of blessing when you're going into battle with the pointy pointy sticks. Yeah. That it ain't going to end badly. Okay. Fair enough. Okay. There's two at Peter's Finger, which mm -hmm. is in Wiltshire, and Graves 20 and 21 both have what they call sword beads, okay. or you might see them called life stones. You also have one at Risley Horton, Grave number 86 in Kent, mm -hmm. that also has a sword bead, and okay. some of them are kind of big. Mm. They they kind of make me think, it's is it the Viking equivalent of a double exhaust? Uh, sort of like a status symbol thing. Yeah. It's like... Is it a status symbol? Is it a, a luck amulet? It, it's not. They're not very common. You see, the thing is, though, they say you'd be like, well, as a status symbol, a sort of warding charm. Yeah. An amulet to protect you from harm. Would that be seen as a high status thing? I mean, and is everybody not going to want one of those? You know, you don't you just want to cover yourself in those. Everybody would want one of those. <laughs> At least one of those, a huge, great big uh, yeah. one that you can hide inside. Yeah, um, just roll yourself down like one of those wee like roly, a zorb. <laughs> we we rolly Viking zorb things from Attack of the Clones, just kind of rolling down yeah. the battlefield in the middle of it. It's like you know, not every sword archaeological sword deposition that they find has a sword bead attached to it. No, no, I was just sort of thinking so about... Very, so they're much rarer, but they think that these single large beads, they're attached to either the scabbard or the sword fixings, the fittings that attach it to a belt. Okay. They think it's more likely to be attached to that than the sword proper. It isn't like it's inset in the pommel. So we're not we're not talking a Hawk the Slayer glowy green thing after we all. We are not talking. There's no Hawk the Slayer thing. Shame. Great music. <laughs> no Lady Hawk. This one is mine to fill thing. None of that. It's <laughs> probably somewhere on the scabbard. But because you know the the soil has numbed all the organics. Yeah. We don't have the scabbards left anymore. All the wood and leather is gone. So what literally, we have, all, all you've got is the stone and. All we've got is the stone and its proximity to a sword mm. so we don't know how these two things are connected but you know, like, well, like I said at the beginning you're looking at items in proximity to each other and you're inferring relationships you're yeah. inferring connections so they know that these beads are in these graves close to swords but they don't know what kind of relationship that is what okay. connection that kind of thing is so yeah Bit of a whistle stop, whistle stop tour around Viking beads. There's a lot of beads. There's a lot of beads, and they get everywhere, <laughs> everywhere. So, lovely listeners, we're going to throw some descriptions into the links of the thing and do the stuff. And have you swapped my coffee for yours? Is that why I can't get my words I, in the right order here? <clears throat> I don't think I would be 
willingly handing <laughs> Rome over to somebody no, else. I don't but think you would either. Just me. Some other reason. So I'm also going to put in the description a couple of places that sell replica beads. Okay. Or small ornamentation, so that if you don't fancy shopping right now, all good and groovy, but you get to see some of these beads. There's one manufacturer in Britain that I'm thinking of specifically, Tillman Beads, mm -hmm. who looks at archaeological reports and makes replica. Okay. Uh, copies. So going for, going for like the authenticity. Going for the authenticity thing, looks at copying the design, the style, the weight, the colours, everything. Yeah. So if you don't feel like spending shiny pennies, take a look at some of the designs, because all of his designs are from archaeological originals. Cool. And they give you an idea of what kind of colours were around. Mm. Sometimes from archaeological examples, what you'll get is a fragment of a broken bead that's scratched all to heck. Yeah. And you don't get any kind of appreciation of what it actually would have looked like. We should probably add, we don't have any any, any arrangement with Tillman beads. It's just they... We don't, but there's stuff in there. <laughs> it's just that they do they do, do the sort yeah. of stuff that is, is of interest in this context. And they take great care to base their copies their replicas on archaeological originals so they can tell you precisely mm. which grave and which context a particular bead style has come from which is why i which really, is kind of neat really like their work mm. so lovely listeners we have come to the end of today's episode if you would like to find us online you can. It's yeah. great. You can find me. I'm Suzanne Martin. I'm on Facebook as Suzanne Martin. I'm also on Twitter at Geetha in Jeans. And if for any reason you want to find me, I'm on and off hanging around Facebook as Kate Coldwind. And you can also visit me at my terrible, terrible blog, um, <laughs> which is at glassrain.net. And if you would like to come and chill out around the new home for the virtual campfire come and find Frithcast on Facebook at Indeed. Frithcast Pod and if you would like to come and join the chat there is a Frith chat attached a group attached to Frithcast yep come and say hi come we and talk to us about your awesome love of shiny beads I might have one or two Laying around in my ritual kit. <laughs> you can never have too many beads. One or two. One or two. One or two. Strings. <laughs> <laughs> so, lovely listeners, thank you very much for being with us around the virtual campfire. We're going to leave you pondering the wonders of beads. And we'll talk to you all next time for episode 87. Bye-bye. See you then.